Now, as we begin, uh, I just want to say the Christmas season often has people asking the question, what is the meaning of Christmas, right? Uh, in fact, you may even turn on the news or get on social media today and uh, see a celebrity or a politician or athlete being interviewed about this time of the year and being asked what the meaning of Christmas is to them. And they, we tend to get tons of different answers, don't we? Uh, some people will say that the meaning of Christmas is family and time with family and uh, the people that we love most, and that is a, a good reason for Christmas. Some may say it's about maybe being a nicer person during this time of the year, and that's true, I think, as well. And uh, some kids, they just left, but some of them may say that it's about presents and getting gifts and having a bad attitude when they don't get what they want. You know, that's kind of one of the reasons for Christmas. We probably all have slightly different answers to that question. What is the meaning of Christmas? Uh, and it, I think it's something we really should ponder about. What really is the meaning for Christmas? And I, I know who I'm talking to today. Okay, we're all here at church. It's December 17th. Christmas is next week. We all know the real meaning of Christmas. We have a pretty good idea about it. But I'd like to suggest today that the meaning of Christmas is about sacrificial service, something that I believe we see in Philippians 2. So let's read our text this morning. Philippians 2, we're going to read verse 5 down through verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that we could be here today. And thank you for all that has transpired so far. Thank you for music that has lifted up the good and great name of Jesus. And I pray now that as we come to this text, Lord, guide me and direct me to say the right things. Lord, uh, help us all to put distractions aside and learn from your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now when you think about Christmas texts, Philippians 2 probably doesn't come to mind, right? Uh, we think of Matthew and Luke being the tr essential Christmas text, but uh, what Matthew and Luke seem to explain and, and kind of uh, assume in a way, Philippians 2 expounds upon, that being the incarnation of Christ and the subsequent realities that flow from his incarnation. In fact, Ephesians, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 may very well be the most clear statement in all of the Bible on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the realities of what that means. Now, the word incarnation, it simply means being embodied or being made flesh. So when we speak of the incarnation, we speak of Christ being made flesh. So why does Paul here in Philippians 2 interject such a deep and important truth in this point in the letter? Well, we need to consider the context of Philippians 2, right? We can't just take this and pluck it out and do whatever we want with it. We need to understand why he's saying what he's saying. Now, Philippians is written from a jail cell. Uh, Paul, is, his future is filled with uncertainty. He doesn't know what's ahead. He doesn't know when or if he'll be released, but he writes this letter to the Philippian church to encourage them. Paul had a soft spot in his heart for the Philippians. He was there at the very beginning of that church. And if you'll go back and take some time to read this letter, which I would encourage you to do, it's only four short chapters. You're going to see throughout this 
just nothing but love and care and concern for this church dripping off of every word that the apostle penned here. Now, uh, and up to this part in our text, he's made a very direct emphasis on gospel service and gospel ministry. He rejoices that they've been partners together in the gospel in chapter one. He talks about his service to the Lord and how they are to partner together for the mission and the, the advancement of the gospel. He mentions that in verse 27. And in chapter two, he begins by calling these believers to selfless service, to unity, to caring more about other believers than they do about themselves. Because uh, if you look in chapter number four, there appears to have been a division in the church between two ladies, uh, and he calls these ladies to unify and to come together. And because of this consistent call to unity and service, uh, I think Paul is meant to address uh, this lack of unity, and he gives this illustration here. He gives the illustration of himself as a servant. He illustrates with Timothy and Epaphroditus as having served and cared for the church. And he undergirds it here with this, uh, this passage of scripture, which is known as the Christ hymn. Okay, now, there's some, uh, some theologians who debate on the origin of the Christ hymn. Some say that this was already circulated throughout the early church and was a hymn of worship in the church up to this point. And Paul uses it as a, a window, an illustration to the truth he's trying to emphasize. Others believe that the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this himself. Um, either way, though, the Christ hymn ended up becoming a staple hymn of praise in the church celebrating the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's really all about anyways. So I believe Philippians 2 provides us with a clear explanation of the meaning of Christmas. And if the meaning of Christmas, as I mentioned earlier, is sacrificial service, how do we get that from Philippians 2? Well, I'd like to highlight three explanations from this text as to the true meaning of Christmas. And I hope you'll follow along with me this morning. First, we want to see that the incarnation of Christ was a willing humbling, a willing humbling. Look with me in verse five. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, verse six and seven, I need you to be prepared. We're going to have to go a little bit deeper than the regular maybe Sunday morning level. We're going to have to put our scuba gear on, so to speak, and dive a little bit. So bear with me, will you, this morning? Look what it says. It says, who being in the form of God. Now, the word form, it gives the idea of the same essence or nature. So here at Fellowship Baptist Church, we believe in the Trinity, okay? And we all say amen. Oh boy, let's start over. We need to confirm orthodoxy before we continue any further. Here at Fellowship Baptist Church, we believe in the Trinity, amen? amen. Okay, good. We're, we're all orthodox. That's very good. That meaning that God is one in essence, three in person, Okay, so when Paul states that Christ is in the form of God, he's highlighting the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. He's saying that Jesus Christ possesses the divine essence. And notice what he says here. He says, who being in the form of God. That word being in the Greek is a verb in the present tense. So it means that this is like a current reality. So what Paul is saying is that this is timeless, that Jesus Christ was, is, and will always be the son of God. He will always be in the form of God. He will always be divine. This is who he is, the second person of the Trinity, God the son, fully God. And this is true from the beginning of the world. It will be true to the end of the world and it will be true until if eternity ever ends, which it never will. So it will always be true. 
So this means that everything we think of and attribute to the Godhead is wholly attributed, attributed to Jesus Christ, completely. Everything you think about when you think about God is true of Christ. We know that God is eternal. We know he's omniscient and that he knows all things. We know he's omnipotent and that he is all powerful. We know he's omnipresent and that he's everywhere present, that he's immutable. He doesn't change. He's sovereign. We could, we could spend the next hour describing who God is. And everything that we would describe about God is true of Jesus Christ. And he is that entirely. This is the, the theological teaching of divine simplicity, that God is not made up of parts, that God is not part Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that is God. God is completely Father, Son, Holy Spirit entirely. And they and God himself possesses all of these things entirely. He's not kind of love and kind of omnipresent. No, he is completely love. He is completely omnipresent. All that is in God is God. And so that in Jesus Christ, all of these things are exactly true of him as well. And we can praise God for that because that means he is truly divine. He, he has the, the divine essence. He is truly divine. So Paul is driving at, with, by saying the form of God, he's driving at the deity of Jesus Christ. You have to start there because if Jesus is not God, who cares? It doesn't matter. But we have to begin with the deity of Christ because what it does is it adds depth and weight to what he says next. Look at verse six. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, in his divinity, Christ, as it says here, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, the word robbery here is being used in our Bible in an old English context, so we need to understand it in modern vernacular today. It has the idea of grasping something. Or more literally, it's the idea of like taking property by force, especially if that property is rightfully yours. So what the Bible is saying is that Christ in his divinity did not regard equality with God something to be snatched up or seized or grasped a hold of because he was worthy or deserving of it, because he certainly is. He was willing to let go of that. Some translations even say that he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or to be used advantage of. Think about that for a moment. He, he in his divinity did not see that as something to use to his own advantage in coming to this earth. And what's being communicated here is staggering that Christ is truly divine, but he willingly released equality with God. I will barely give up my morning coffee. And Christ willingly released equality with God. Look what it continues to say. Instead, he made himself of no reputation. Now, the Greek word for that phrase there, made of no reputation, it's the word kenosis. You may have heard this passage referred to as the kenosis passage. It's the idea of emptying or laying something aside. So Christ, being fully God, didn't seize onto equality with God, but emptied himself or set aside his divine privileges. He did not lose them. He placed them aside. And look what it continues to say in verse 7 and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He set aside the equality of his deity to take upon himself the form of a servant and to become in the likeness of men. Now, notice it says he takes on the form of a servant. He set his divine privileges aside, although not losing them, and added another nature to himself, humanity. This is why we call Jesus the God-man, because he is fully God and fully man. 
possessing two natures. It's a wild paradox. And I don't know about you, I can't understand it. But it is the reality and the testimony of Scripture that Christ, being fully God, became fully man. He willingly laid aside his privileges or rights that may have been his to become like us, to become like you and me. So apart from the sin nature, there is nothing about humanity that Jesus did not experience. Nothing. When he was a baby, he cried. Pet peeve. In a way in a manger, it says that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's garbage. He definitely cried. He was a baby. He had growth spurts as a child. He experienced the uncomfortable nature of the teenage years. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was tired. Everything that is true of the human experience, Jesus Christ experienced it. And yet at the very same time, he was fully God. He was fully God so that when he was 12, he could teach the religious leaders. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. All the things that only God can do, Jesus did because he is fully God. He is fully divine. And the Bible tells us in other passages that in Christ, we see the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God is, is physically embodied in the person of Jesus. We see in John's gospel that in Christ, we behold the glory of the Father. Don't let that verse, when you're reading John 1, don't let that pass you by. Think about that for a moment. That which the Old Testament saints longed to see and could not see because they would be killed, we see embodied in Jesus Christ. The Old Testaments wanted to see the glory of God and the apostles and the disciples physically saw and touched and handled him. The glory of God in flesh. It's amazing. And it raises a question, doesn't it? Why? I love that question. We're asking that question a lot these days. Why? Why did Jesus willingly humble himself? Why did he take on human nature? Well, we have to think about the context of Philippians 2. Jesus came to what? Serve. If the meaning of Christmas is sacrificial service, then we see that highlighted very clearly in the life of Christ. He told his disciples, the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The mission of Christ was a mission of service to all mankind. And that was to pay the price for salvation for all who believe. So he's Paul's telling his audience that this is the mind that should be in you. Brothers and sisters, this is the mind that should be in you. The mind of Christ, that of willing, humble service. So how often are we guilty of holding on to things because letting go of them for the service of others is highly inconvenient to us? How often do we cling to our privileges because we believe we deserve them? Christ, who deserves all things, who is worthy of all praise, willingly humbled himself and laid aside his own privileges to serve us. And he left us that as an example of how to live and serve others. And if we consider the context of Philippians, yes, we can make a broader application that we need to serve other people. But in the context of Philippians, we're talking about the church. So to be contextually consistent, we have to apply this to serving those in the church, which means we have to seriously reckon with our own pride and ask ourselves, why do I hesitate to serve other people when it will cost me something significant? 
Why do we balk at the idea of giving up money and time to minister to others within the church? If we're called to have the mind of Christ and serve others, why are we slow to set aside our lives to serve other people with humility? And we see Christ, whose incarnation is a clear example of willing, uh, willingly humbling yourself for the good of others. And we need to ask God, God, grow that kind of service in me. That when I know of something that I can do to serve my brothers and sisters, that I will do it because of Jesus. The miracle of the incarnation was a willing humbling, and it reminds us of the meaning of Christmas because it was through that humbling that Christ came to serve us. Number two, we see that the crucifixion of Christ was an obedient suffering. Look at verse eight. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Christ took on human nature to serve, and ultimately that service led to his own death. Laying aside the privileges of his deity, he humbled himself and died. This verse, by starting with and being found in fashion, uh, that's another word that you could translate as essence or nature, uh, being found in fashion as a man, because of that phrase, we see that we're dealing with Christ's humanity. So in his human body, Christ willingly and obediently suffered unto death. Willingly. His mission was to serve others, and that led to his death on the cross, and he humbled himself to be betrayed, to be beaten, and to be murdered. He was humbly obedient to the will of the Father to die for the sins of the world. He obeyed the Father to sacrificially suffer for sin for the world by dying on the cross. He served others by suffering for them by paying the ultimate price of his own life so that others could know God through his sacrifice. And the testimony of the New Testament would carry that even further, that he served others by, by suffering with them. He enters into our sufferings. This is the reality of living for God, though. It requires an obedient suffering, a willingness to lay down our lives for his purpose. Because, but the problem is we hesitate to do this because sacrifice is not something we really like. A missionary in Brazil, he went to a, a religious festival and he was looking at the different booths and trying to see what all they were selling. And above one booth, he noticed a sign that said, cheap crosses. And he thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days, cheap crosses. My Lord's cross was not cheap. Why should mine be? Do you hope for a cheap cross? One that doesn't require you to sacrifice too much? Would, would you be willing to sacrifice for the people in this room? Would you be willing to lay down your life, not in death per se, but in death to self, to serve and care for your brothers and sisters? The deal is we like cheap crosses because the sacrifice associated with a cheap cross have their limits. We like the cheap cross of Sunday morning only Christianity because it only takes a few hours a week to fulfill. We like the cheap cross of comfortable financial giving because it eases our conscience that, well, we, we gave a little something. We like the cheap cross of lip service over life sacrifice because it's so much easier to look someone in the eyes and say, I'm praying for you and go about your business than it is to pray for them and then enter into their life with them. Listen, 
And understand me well, Christ in his deity did not have to sacrifice himself for us. He didn't have to. Do you understand that Christ could have let us die and burn in hell forever and he would have been perfectly just in doing so? But he loves us too much to let us die in our sin. So he willingly humbled himself and went to the cross to die in our place so we could know him and then turn around and sacrifice our lives for him. If the creator of all things was willing to do that for us, then there is no sacrifice he could possibly call us to make that is too great. The crucifixion of Christ was an obedient suffering. And we see the true meaning of Christmas in that because it was through that that Christ served us. But number three, we see that the exaltation of Christ is a worthy crowning. Look at verse number nine. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Because of his incarnation and, and crucifixion, that's why he says, wherefore, in verse number nine, Jesus is exalted. God has highly exalted Christ and given him a name that is above every name. Now, I noticed something here in this text. It seems that Paul is implying something. Uh, and you have to consider the order of these verses to see it here. What's he implying? I believe he's implying uh, something just massive. First, he explicitly explains the incarnation. We see it in great detail. He explicitly explains the crucifixion of Christ and then he explicitly explains the exaltation of Christ. So what's the implication? I believe it's the resurrection of Christ. I think it would be, it would be fair to say that Paul leaving a direct reference to the resurrection out of this text is a move of confidence, implying that his readers already know super well Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, he is worthy to be exalted above all others. So I think it's on those grounds that he jumps to the exaltation of Christ. Jesus has a name that is above every name because he is the only one to live, die, and rise victorious over death. And his name is now and on the last day will be the name to whom everything and everyone will bow. Heaven, earth, under the earth, doesn't matter where they're from or, or whatever the case may be, they will bow to his name. And their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ humbled himself, because he died, and because he lives forevermore, he is worthy of all the honor. He is worthy of all the glory. He is worthy of all the exaltation that he is due. You may have heard the story of the great Moravian missionaries before. There's some debate on the veracity of the story, but the illustration is powerful. They heard of an island in the West Indies owned by an atheist who refused to allow Christian missionaries onto his island. And he had between two and 3,000 slaves there. He hated Christianity. He hated anything to do with it. And he had a strict policy against anyone coming there with the gospel. In fact, if you were shipwrecked near his island, they had special quarters just for you. And you could stay there and only there until you were able to leave. The only way to gain access to the island and the slaves that inhabited the island was to come as a slave yourself. And these 
Moravian missionaries, as the story goes, sold themselves into slavery to be able to preach the gospel to these souls who would never hear the gospel otherwise. As their ship was departing with their friends and family waving tearful goodbyes and the ship was sailing off into the distance, they say that these men from the ships shouted back to land, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. To these men, Christ was worthy of any sacrifice. And this is exactly why we serve. This is exactly why we sacrifice, because Jesus is worthy of all of it. He is Jesus, the king of the ages, and because of who he is and what he has done, he is worthy. This is why we celebrate this incarnation at Christmas, because he is worthy. It's why we celebrate the resurrection at Easter and truly every Sunday, because he is worthy. It's why we look forward to his coming back with anticipation because he is worthy. His exaltation is a worthy crowning because he is the one everything is all about. And this is very, the very reason why we serve others. Not because they are worthy, but because he is. This was very, Paul's very emphasis. He said to the Philippians in chapter number one that he was confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. His confidence was not in the Philippians. His confidence was in God. And the reason we serve one another is not because you earned it and you deserved it. No, we do it because Jesus is worthy. And if Jesus esteemed the church something worth dying for, it is something we can sacrifice for. And the very meaning of Christmas is the exaltation of Christ. Why? Because he is worthy because of what he's done. So as you navigate the remainder of the holiday, you're going to have opportunities to celebrate. I hope. Maybe depending upon your situation, you'll have opportunities to despair. That's just a reality. This Christmas, you may experience every emotion under the sun. But I challenge you to remember The meaning of Christmas transcends a calendar date and any feelings that come along with it. The meaning of Christmas transcends time and space because the meaning is Jesus and his sacrifice. The sacrifice he made for sinners. The meaning is because of Jesus, you don't have to bear the punishment and judgment for your own sin. He did it for you. The meaning is the work is done. Jesus has declared it is finished. Now we don't preach a gospel that says get to work. We preach a gospel that says it is finished. The meaning is that because of Jesus, you, you, literally you, if you are a child of God, you, literally you, I hope you believe you, understand that because of Jesus, you are fully accepted by God. And there is nothing you can do to make yourself more or less accepted by him because it rests on Jesus. So friends, lift your eyes to Christ this Christmas. We got eight days. How many times in the next eight days can you stop and say, he is worthy? How many times in the next eight days can you stop and say, because of his sacrifice, I can sacrifice for others? How many times in the next eight days can you look around this room right now today 
and find somebody in this room who needs something and just meet it. Oh, I, I, it's, things are tight right now. You're right. But you know what? It doesn't cost you anything to go and sit down with somebody and just be there. Why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy. Lift your eyes to Jesus and remember he is the meaning of Christmas and his sacrifice should motivate the rest of our life today.